Good morning. Good to see each of you here today. Got some friends from out of town here today too. That's awesome. Glad all of you could be here. I know there's a lot of stuff you can do on Sunday, so I'm glad you chose to be here with us. Uh, in fact, this this weekend, uh, even I know there's a lot of stuff going on. I did a basketball camp, got to officiate basketball camp uh, yesterday and today, and I was talking with a guy because the camp now all of a sudden has games on Sunday and they're early in the morning. And I was talking to him. I was like, man, I don't remember it being like that when we were in school. You know. I'm, uh, and playing, and uh, they, they always started the games in the afternoon, and he's like, yeah, but people, people need their Sunday afternoons, and I was like, well, what about, what about people that go to church on Sunday morning? He's like, oh, nobody goes to church anymore, and I was like, oh, okay, well, maybe so, I don't know, we'll find out, I guess, but uh, as, a, as doing that whole camp thing, it was a, kind of a big deal because it was for officials to, to work their way up in order to get assigned these uh, maybe more high-profile games. You had to be at this camp. There's all kinds of different assigners and all that. And one of their big things was that they, they wanted the officials to, like, yell and be really loud. So uh, I had nine games on Friday and Saturday. How many of you all know Saturday evening? My voice was almost shot. I was administering a free throw, and uh, I was telling them, you know, hey, one shot, we're live. And so I was like, one shot, we're live. Like, my voice cracks. It was incredibly embarrassing. So if I'm drinking water today, that's the reason why, because I don't want to do that in front of you all, even though I just demonstrated it for you. But if you're a guest with us or just here for the first time in a long time, we've been in a series called The Movement, and what we've been doing is looking at a book of your Bible called Acts, and really our entire tagline of this entire series has been that every movement begins with a moment, that we've been looking at different moments and and reading through this book of Acts to find out how moments lead to movements of God, and ultimately, ultimately my goal for this series was for you to take a look at your life and moments in your life and ask yourself, how can this moment lead to a movement? Maybe a movement towards God. That's my really my ultimate goal. My my challenge for each one of you is to figure out how you can take steps closer to God. And the reason why we're looking at the book of Acts for that is because of all the different kinds of moments. There are so many amazing moments within this narrative. And the only logical response through some of those is that you have to be moved closer to God. We see that happen. There are moments you can read thousands of people getting saved. That, that starts a movement. But then there's other moments where you're like, man, how could that, how could that lead anybody to God? Like that's, that seems like just the opposite. People should be being pulled away from God or something like that, but that's not at all what happens. And so if you missed any of the prior messages, you can check them out online. But today we're going to look at another moment. It's actually three moments in the book of Acts. It's going to be in Acts chapter 16. So if you brought a Bible, I hope you did. Go ahead and grab it. Uh, turn to Acts chapter 16. If you're new to the whole Bible thing, there should be a table of contents there at the front. You can find out what page Acts is on. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some free ones there in the back for you. In the meantime, just take out your smartphone, download the Version Bible app. You will be all set. But while you're getting to Acts 16, let me kind of set up, frame in where we're going to be headed today. The other day as I was studying, I came across some information that really intrigued me as a pastor specifically because uh, I was uh, talking about a very specific area of the world where researchers found that among this 
a particular group of people, there was only a 6% divorce rate and over 90% of people gave 10% of their income to their local church and young men aged 18 to 20, over 80% of them went on a voluntary trip to try and multiply their religion. I thought, man, these people are killing it. Where, where's this at? What are they doing? How can we incorporate maybe some of this? And as I read on, I was devastated to find out that this was in Provo, Utah. And it was among the Mormons. And just to put this research in perspective for you, while the Mormons experience a 6% divorce rate, evangelicals in the United States experience an over 50% divorce rate. Whereas over 90% of Mormons give 10% of their money to the church, only 2% of evangelical Christians in the United States do. And while 80% of their young males are going on missions trips all over the world to spread the religion over 95% of American Christians have never shared their faith to anybody. Anybody. And get this, these dudes aren't getting paid for the mission trip. It's completely voluntary. For two years of their life, their morning starts at 6.30 a.m. It ends at 10.30 p.m. But as we talked about, people in America can't even come to church four Sundays a month because it's too big of a commitment. Uh, average now is twice a month. And what was wildly fascinating to me is that a separate study found on average the Mormon missionary team will knock on over a thousand doors before they'll even get a single person to engage them in conversation. Now, I don't know about you, but after about 10 doors, I'm being like, bump this. Let's go get some ice cream, man. It's hot out here. We've been riding our bikes. We're in this crazy suit. We need something to cool down and drink. But Furthermore, as a business mind person, you know, as kind of my background, it occurred to me that no wonder we've got a lot of Mormon CEOs and high-ranking professionals because they've got grit, they've got tenacity, they've got perseverance. They're not afraid to be told no. Problem is, what they don't have is the truth. And what they're spreading is a false gospel. And just a couple of years ago, they were the fastest growing religion in the United States. In fact, what's super ironic to me is other countries started because of the drastic speed of Mormonism here in the U.S. They started sending us missionaries because they didn't want their immigrants being converted to a false religion. Now that's embarrassing. We couldn't even do our job. But here's the good news. We can change all this. Today could be the moment that starts a movement because I'm going to show you the pattern for evangelism that God laid out in the Bible. And listen to me, it's not weird and it's not hard. Like, like we can do this. We don't have to be part of the 95% that's never shared their faith because it's super simple. So let's take a look at this together. Let's go Acts 16. We're going to start in verse 13. It reads, And on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to... There was my voice. Did you hear that? Let me. I might need to get a little drink here. Man, nine games. Brutal. Where we supposed there was a place of prayer, we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from a city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. 
And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were also met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days, Paul having become greatly annoyed. I love that. Love that. Turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews. They are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. You see what's starting there. They're playing the race card. we got a racial riot about to happen. The crowd joined in in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Three people. Three opportunities to hear the word of God, to share the good news of Jesus. That's all evangelism is, sharing the good news of Jesus. And significantly more than three people getting saved. It's amazing. But what's this have to do with us? You might jot this down if you're taking notes. The reason why Acts 16 matters to, do, to you today, what you need to know and what you need to remember is that the gospel is for everybody. The gospel is for everybody. Acts 16 shows us that it's for anyone, everyone. These three people could not be any more different. First of all, let's look at them racially. Lydia, we're told, is from Thyatira. Thyatira is a city in Turkey. That was part of Asia. Therefore, even though Philippi was in Europe, Lydia was Asian. Little slave girl, almost for sure, native Greek. Jailer, he would have been Roman because good civil service jobs were given to retired Roman soldiers. So racially, you've got an Asian, a Greek, and a Roman economically, when it tells us Lydia's from Thyatira, though she had a house in Philippi, we're being told she's extremely wealthy. She's rich. She's a CEO of a fashion company. She's got power. She's got influence. She has wealth. But then when you get to the slave girl, you have someone economically who's on the complete other end of the spectrum, whereas Lydia's powerful. The slave girl's utterly powerless. She's a slave. She has no hope of a financial future. 
You get to the jailer. His life's not anywhere as successful as Lydia's, but it's also not uh, as bad as the slave girl's. He's not such a mess. He's just a blue-collar, hard-working dude working in the prison. Today's world, you'd have Lydia eating at a place like Massa's in New York City where it's $600 for a plate of sushi. Sushi. And then she's going to jump on her private jet. She's going to fly to L.A. or Paris for Fashion Week. But then the slave girl, she's basically just like a 14-year-old prostitute. She's not getting masses. Her pimp that probably beats her is going to bring her McDonald's for her supper. But then the, the jailer, he's just a, a normal guy. He's going to hit up the pub after work. That's the people that we're we're looking at today. These are people that would never meet. They would never interact. They're entirely different worlds, not just economically, not just racially, but also rationally, mentally. See, Lydia wants and needs a discussion. She needs a study. She wants reflection. She wants evidence. The slave girl, she needed something else. She needed a powerful, emotional, spiritual encounter. She can't think straight. She can't carry on a conversation. The jailer, he's like most people in the world today. He's just kind of indifferent. He's got no reason to go to church. He doesn't want to talk. He doesn't need to think. He just needs somebody to show him how life should work. Show him something meaningful that could change the course that he's on. Just to further prove the differences, look at them spiritually. Lydia's empty. How do I know she's empty? Because Lydia has achieved something that even today is hard for a woman. Back then, it would have been nearly impossible for a woman to do, but she's achieved status, she's achieved power, she's achieved wealth, and then we're told that she's a worshiper of God, despite the fact that she wasn't a Jew. So it's not a huge leap of faith for us to, to believe that that for, in order for her to leave these pagan roots, the, the worship of all kinds of different gods and turn to the one true God of the Bible, she must have experienced some kind of emptiness. She had power, she had wealth, she had what everybody is looking for, but, but she starts seeking after God because she couldn't find it in all those other things. Slave girl, again, is complete opposite spiritually. She's not necessarily empty. She's been filled up with a demon. Look what the text says about her. Once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. She was able to predict the future. It's kind of interesting because that's not a 100% accurate translation of the Greek, which is what that text was written in. You're never going to find the actual translation in Greek in any American Bible, though, because it'd be really weird for today's reader the original Greek reads, going to the place of prayer were met by a slave girl with the spirit of a python, like the snake. It's kind of weird, right? But uh, in Greece, Delphi specifically, there's a famous ancient temple to Apollo, and an oracle lived there. He was able, supposedly, to predict the future. That temple was guarded by a python. So in those days, whenever you came upon a person like this girl who talked wildly, she's kind of manic, she made all these crazy predictions and declarations, whenever you came across a person like that, you would say, they've got a spirit of the python. It's just what you said back then. But of course, her strange, awful behavior, her parents ended up selling her in to slavery. The owners that bought her used her. They let people come and ask her questions, but they had to pay for the response. You can see that she started coming after Paul and Silas. She said, these men are servants of the Most High God. Again, when we read that, we think, yeah, they are. Why is that weird? The reason it's weird and the reason 
that they got mad about it. Paul got greatly annoyed. And the reason we don't get greatly annoyed about it, we're kind of confused about this situation, is because Paul knew his Bible and you and I probably don't. See, in Isaiah 14, we have an account of how one of the great angels became Satan. We have a place where Lucifer says, I will ascend, I will be the most high. The most high is the envious, resentful way in which the devil himself talk about God. Paul knows that. So that's why it annoys him. And so he casts out her demon. And then again, think about the jailer. He absolutely has no spiritual interest. There's nothing wrong with his life. Why would he seek help from God? He's good. He's just living. Again, you can see these are three people are totally different. Rationally, racially, rationally, spiritually, emotionally, economically, everything, every possible way different. Yet, God seeks and saves each one of them. God comes after them. Why? Because the gospel is for everybody, anyone. doesn't matter your social class or your economic standing or your race or any of those things. The gospel is for you. Jesus wants to be in a relationship with you. That's the good news. Now, I don't know how your mind works, but I often wonder, yeah, I, I get that. I get that the gospel is for everybody. I'm okay with that, but why these three? Like, why of the hundreds and thousands of salvations that Paul gets to see and Luke records for him, why these three? Why did they have their stories told? Here's what I found out. It's kind of interesting. In the Jewish Siddur, which is just a book of prayers dated all the way back to Moses, so thousands of years of prayers all recorded in this book that people would read and pray these prayers. A good Jewish boy would learn one of these prayers, and here it is. It says, thank you, God, that I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. True story. Who's God safe? A woman, a slave, and a Gentile. How amazing is God that he destroys a horrific prayer like that by saving a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. See, all are welcome at the foot of the cross. And listen to me, all are equal at the foot of the cross. Gospels for everybody. It puts you on the same playing field playing field, what Jesus accomplished by raising from the dead is for everyone. Now, here's why I started the way I did, because we can spread that good news to everyone, and I want you to see that there's a biblical pattern on how to effectively do evangelism, how to share this good news, no matter who we're talking to, because the gospel's for everybody. There's a a pattern on on what you can do, no matter who you're going to engage in conversation. What's the pattern? Well, first, we read that Paul intentionally went out for the purpose of sharing the good news about Jesus. So what's the first thing that you want to do or are going to do if you're going to follow this pattern the first thing you have to do is accept the personal responsibility you got to understand that that your god's plan a there's not a plan b and so you got to accept the personal responsibility that i need to do my part in evangelism check out what paul writes in romans 10 1 brothers and sisters My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. You see what he says? It's my heart's desire that people are saved. In other words, he has a heart for the lost. 
It's what's driving him. It's what's motivating him. Let me ask you an important question. Do you have a heart for the lost? Do you have the heart that Paul had, the heart that God has? Does it compel you to tell people about Jesus? Let me share another passage with you that Paul also wrote, 2 Corinthians 5.11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. What was Paul's other motivation for sharing the gospel? The fear of the Lord. Besides his heart for the lost, it was fear of the Lord. He knew that one day he was going to have to stand before God and give an account for his life, and he was a little bit nervous about that. Let me say it this way. He was more afraid of God than he was of being looking, of looking weird. That's what drove him. Look what he says after that in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and because he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. See, Paul's other motivation was love. Same love that took Jesus to the cross to die for each one of us should compel you to no longer live for yourself, but to live for God and to live for others. So the pattern for evangelism is first you have to accept the personal responsibility that you should be talking to people about Jesus, that you should have the same heart as God. And God's heart is for the lost. You need not look any further. Lost coin, lost sheep, lost son. Three stories in the book of Luke that tell you that God's heart is for the lost. Listen to me. It's why He's placed you here and now for this reason, to share the good news of Jesus. Paul also writes, you have been entrusted the ministry of reconciliation. God's given you the purpose of sharing the good news about His Son, Jesus. So you got to take that on as a personal responsibility. The second thing that you have to do and that you should see here is you have to resign from being the Holy Spirit. It's not your job to convict anybody of anything. Look again at verse 14. Paul's talking about Lydia. It says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Which means God's the one who opens up the person's heart to hear what you have to say. All you have to do is give the message. That's good news because the pressure's off of you. You don't have to be super articulate. You don't have to give some great, amazing gospel presentation. You don't have to have all the answers. You can relax a little bit. You just have to share the good news. You have to be willing to do that. Now, once you understand that evangelism is your responsibility and that you've resigned from being the Holy Spirit. It's not your job to convict anybody of their sin. It's your job just to share the good news of Jesus, that He's going to be the one to open up their heart. The next thing that you have to do is you've got to build a relationship. You've got to build the relationship. I've said it many times that people don't care what you know until they know that you care. So you have to start engaging and interacting with people, specifically non-Christian people. Pray to God. God, whose life are you trying to reach through me today? Start having eyes to see these people around you that need to hear the good news, Jesus. Now, doing that is not easy. In fact, it's quite hard because it requires self-sacrifice and a commitment to doing it. But we've already established God has commanded that we do it. He's entrusted us to doing it. 
So once you've built that relationship, which there's thousands of ways to do that, I'm going to talk a little bit about that more in a second. You just got to understand that the next thing you have to do is build the relationship. Now it's time for you to share the gospel. Share God's redemption story. Now this is important because look at how Paul engages these people in different ways. First, he comes after Lydia through her mind. God leads Paul to engage her in spiritual conversation. What's that mean for you? You can do the same thing if you know somebody who has some spiritual interest. You engage them intellectually. Invite them to church. Invite them to study the Bible with you. Invite them to read a book with you. We have got access to Right Now Media, which is essentially just Netflix for Bible studies. Invite them to do something like that with you. You're wondering, how do I know if they're spiritually open, Pastor? Because you've built the relationship. That was step two. Furthermore, if you've built the relationship, you're going to find that there are people who are not spiritually open. People like the slave girl. People like the jailer. Neither of them are going to come to church. They're not coming to your Bible study. So how do you engage them? What do you do? Well, Paul goes after them in different ways. How does he go after the slave girl with a direct assault at her heart? What's that look like for you? It means you build the relationship with them, and then you just ask them, can I tell you about Jesus? I see some things happening in your life that look dangerous. Can I help you? Can I tell you about these things? It's not waiting for them to ask like the jailer did. It's just a direct all-out assault on the front end. You share with them. I love what the Bible says because Paul was greatly annoyed. He cast a demon out of her. How many of you all just show of hands have people in your life that great you anno- greatly annoy you? Okay. If they're sitting next to you, don't be like, <laughs> right? Okay. I mean, just ignore that. Hand up. Okay. Well, then you've got to share the gospel with those people specifically first. Because if they greatly annoy you and you share the gospel with them and they're like, man, you're weird and they leave, that's a win-win, right? (laughs) They're no longer there to annoy you and you did what you were supposed to do, okay? As a pastor, this happens to me all the time because the conversation almost immediately gets shut down the moment you say you're a pastor. I've said that for a while. I was telling my wife, nobody wants to know that I'm a pastor. The conversation ends immediately because what's the first thing they expect of you? Well, I'm a pastor. Can I tell you about Jesus? Because it's kind of the next thing I've got to do, right? Well, so we were at a wedding not that long ago. We sit down at the table. They knew I was a pastor because I had just done the ceremony, and it was crickets. And my wife was like, you're right. They, they had nothing to say to you. I was like, I know, I know. That's, that was weird. But it should be a lot easier for you is my point. You get to engage people in conversation where they're at. You get to meet them where they're at. And finally, after you build a relationship, you invite people over for dinner. You talk to your neighbor. You do all these things. And eventually, you can lead the conversation to Jesus. There's a variety of ways to do that. But finally, how does he go after the jailer? He shocks him by showing him what a changed life looks like. It's important to notice that after mob beats Paul and Silas, they bring him to the prison. The jailer is ordered, has been ordered to keep them safe. The Bible says he receives that order, but what's he do? He puts them in the stocks. He tortures them. That's what, he, that's what it means. 
ordered to keep them safe, he decides to torture them. Stocks are not those things that you see on the East Coast where, you, you know, the pirates or whatever used to be in there. You stick your arms in, your head goes in. All That's not stocks in this uh, literal text. Stocks are things they put around your ankles. They would lay you on your back. Your neck and shoulders would be on the concrete. They would raise your feet up. So then your legs have to spread out and up, and you're locked in with your, with your back off the floor. It's excruciatingly painful, and it's meant to torture you. Sometimes the prison guards would come in and beat the bottoms of your feet or your hamstrings so you couldn't walk. That's what getting put in the stocks are. Now, what do Paul and Silas do during the torture? They start singing, which is another good point in your life. There's going to be prisoners who are listening to you in your life and how you respond in life. They're watching you. And Paul and Silas respond with joy, which means you need to look at your life and you need to ask yourself, where does my joy come from? Well, pastor, it comes from my health. Well, what if that gets taken away? I can give you half a dozen people right now who have cancer diagnosis, just out of the blue, otherwise healthy. Well, my joy comes from my success. Well, what happens if the economy collapses? Well, then where does it come from? Well, my joy comes from love. Well, what if they break up with you? What if you lose them, God forbid? Where's your joy coming from in those moments? Where is your joy? There is no joy. Well, Paul and Silas, they're in that spot. They're being tortured. They had everything taken away from them. They likely could be killed tomorrow. And what are they doing? Singing praises to God. This jailer's never seen anything like it. He's never seen anybody with so much joy that's so deep that no circumstance can get to it. But then what's most astonishing to him is that when there's an earthquake and everybody is freed from the prison, which it's important to know that in those days, if a soldier had a prisoner who escaped that was in his care, that that soldier, his life is over. He gets killed. So he's literally tortured these guys, even though he's just ordered to keep them safe. An earthquake literally shakes the chains loose. He's astounded to find that even after the torture, they stay, and all the other prisoners stay with them. Probably because they were singing some great songs. They were like, man, teach us these songs. I don't know. But in other words, they overcame evil with good. They had his life in their hands, whereas before he had their lives in his hands. Instead of getting back at this bigot who beats and tortures them, and likely all the other prisoners, they decide that they're going to show him practical kindness. And they teach him a lesson that blows his mind. And in turn, it changes his life and the life of his household. What a fantastic outcome. Now listen to me as we close. This could be your story. You could be a part of this. You might be here today. You might be hearing this Christianity thing for the first time about how Jesus loves you. And it's not about something that you have to do, but rather it's what Jesus has done for you. Today could be the moment that changes your life. I'll tell you how in just a second. But for others of you, this moment could be the moment you realize that you need to play your part in somebody else's salvation story. That you've got to accept the personal responsibility that God has entrusted to you this good news. And that you've got to resign from being the Holy Spirit and somehow get into a relationship with some unbelievers. And you're going to put yourself in some uncomfortable situations so that you can do the will of God. 
So you're going to find out your waitress's name. And you're going to ask her questions and you're going to engage her on a deeper level. Or you're going to go to the gym and you're going to engage people on a deeper level. You're going to talk to them. You're going to ask questions to them. You're going to engage your checkout person at the supermarket or the bank or wherever it is you go on a daily basis. You're going to start having eyes to see them in a different way than somebody that can serve you. And you're going to figure out how you can serve them. You're going to ask questions. You might be thinking, well, I have a hard time with joy right now, Pastor. I get that I'm supposed to do this, and it's because of joy that I have that I'm able to do all this stuff, but I don't doubt that's true for you. I know some of your stories, and yeah, I believe that the joy might be hard for you, but that's the true test of your faith in Jesus. It's can you have joy in these difficult times of your life? The best sermon that you'll ever preach is the one that you'll preach in a time of trouble. Because listen to me, that's when the prisoners are listening. Why would they listen to you if everything's going right? Of course God's blessing you. you uh, yeah, yeah, you do everything right. But when things are going wrong, and they see how you respond in those moments, and you see, they see you respond in joy, now they're like the prison guard. What must I do to be saved? How can I have this same joy? Can you be like Paul and Silas that in those moments, heartache and difficulty, show people joy in a better way because of what Jesus did for your life? Listen to me, it's as simple as sharing your story. It's all evangelism is. Here's where I was at. Here's what I found out. And because of Jesus, here's where I'm headed. I know I'm not perfect. My life's up and down. I wish somebody would have told me that when I first got saved. That, that it's up and down and sometimes it's off to the left and to the right and it's all over the place. But as long as your trajectory is up and to the right, man, that's what people are looking at. That you've got to be taking steps closer to God. Today could be the moment that pushes your movement closer to God, but you've got to be willing to accept the responsibility. God's called you, and He's gifted you, and He's given you passions, and He's given you a spiritual responsibility, and now you've got to play your part because you've got a purpose. Like I said before, pray to God, whose life are you trying to reach through me today? Let's make that each of our prayers right now with every head bowed, every eye closed. I said to you earlier that if you're here today and you've never accepted this, that Jesus is Savior, that He died on a cross, and that He rose from the dead, you're like the Jerry. You're saying, what must I do to be saved? The Bible says you've got to confess and believe. So I want to give you a chance to do that right now in your own heart. Just say, God, I'm sorry. Sorry for the sin in my life. Please forgive me because I believe in Jesus that He died for me, that He rose from the dead. And because of that, I'm alive. Thank you for this new life. Help me to live for you. And as we continue to pray, if you're here this morning, you've trusted Jesus, but you've never had 
an opportunity to share your faith, I want to pray for you right now. Just in your heart, say, God, who are you trying to reach through me today? Whose life can I change because of what you've done? Pray, God, give me eyes to see. Give me a heart for the lost. Help me play my part in your salvation story. And God, we love you. And we thank you that you've given us purpose for our life, that we have hope. That as we all sit here today, the reason we're still here is because you want us to accomplish your purpose. Help each person realize that purpose to the fullest extent possible. All through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.